the Weekly Appellate Report for June 23rd, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast featuring commentary and insights from practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments. This week was a busy one for the country's high court, and today's guests will help unpack a couple of rulings from SCOTUS's end-of-term glut, one correcting what turned out to be California's undue expansion of specific personal jurisdiction, and another that foretells future ferment as to the doctrine of qualified immunity. First, we'll hear from Blaine Evanson, a partner with Gibson, Dunn, & Crutcher, who will explain the personal jurisdiction ruling in the matter of Bristol-Myers Squibb v. Superior Court, a case that split the California Supreme Court last summer. In that 4-3 to three decision, our state's high court applied a novel sliding-scale approach that allowed California to exercise specific personal jurisdiction over an out-of-state drug maker as to claims of out-of-state plaintiffs. As it turned out, that approach was both novel and, in the U.S. Supreme Court's view, with the exception of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, incorrect. Mr. Evanson will explain the legal rationale for why that is so and how SCOTUS's ruling impacts the state of play between mass tort plaintiffs and corporate defendants. Then, William Bode, professor from University of Chicago Law School, will visit to discuss a concurrence from Ziegler v. Abbasi, in which Justice Clarence Thomas expressed some skepticism about the viability of the modern qualified immunity doctrine, which protects state actors from liability when they violated plaintiff's civil rights. Professor Bode wrote a forthcoming law review article, likewise questioning the doctrine's legal foundation, and indeed, Justice Thomas cites that article as persuasive rationale for why, in an appropriate case, the court should revisit its qualified immunity jurisprudence. Professor Bode will lay out his arguments against the current doctrine, which have persuaded, or at least interested, one member of the U.S. Supreme Court, if not more. Before we hear from our guests, though, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then, let's hear from Blaine Evanson in the case of Bristol-Myers Squibb v. Superior Court. Glad to be joined now by Mr. Blaine Evanson partner at Gibson, Dunn, & Crutcher, who practices within, among others, the firm's appellate and constitutional law practice groups. Mr. Evanston, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Happy to have you here to talk about the case of Bristol-Myers Squibb versus Superior Court, one down from the, the U.S. Supreme Court this week, and a closely followed one um, by many, and, and particularly among them, California attorneys, as this case arose from our own uh, California Supreme Court, it deals with personal jurisdiction and uh, in particular, specific personal jurisdiction. Um, and I, I do recall when the, the opinion came down from the California Supreme Court last year, uh, there seemed to be some differences of opinion as to whether it was an overly expansive view of that uh, that doctrine, specific personal jurisdiction. Turns out the U.S. Supreme Court took that view. Um, others thought it was a, sort of a proper response to a continued, perhaps narrowing of the general ter- personal jurisdiction doctrine. But everyone seemed to agree the U.S. Supreme Court would take this up. So uh, we'll go ahead and, and talk about the ruling, but first maybe we could set some context by discussing the, the Supreme Court's rulings from the past few years regarding personal jurisdiction. Um, there's been some salient ones, uh, in particular relating to a general personal jurisdiction. I'm talking about you know, ones everyone knows, the Goodyear Tires case, Daimler versus Bauman, and very recently the, the BNSF versus Tyrell case. Um, perhaps could you walk me through what the trend has been with these uh, bellwether personal jurisdiction cases from the U.S. Supreme Court over the last few years? Sure. You know, for law students, the uh, personal jurisdiction cases start with Penoyer versus Neff and International Shoe, and I remember being a law student and finding those just impossible to understand. Um, but the court in the last five or six years has really tightened and um, clarified the law a lot. So beginning, as you mentioned, with the 2011 Goodyear decision, uh, where the court, uh, for the first time, I think, sort of started to clarify the standards General jurisdiction was available where the contacts are so systematic and continuous that the defendant could fairly be considered at home in the jurisdiction. That's the, the standard from the Goodyear case. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lower court struggled with that standard, and so we then had the 2014 uh, decision in uh, Daimler versus Bowman. That was handled by one of my partners. And the real innovation of that case was this clear rule that a defendant is at home, again, drawing on the Goodyear standard, um, but a defendant is at home really only where it is incorporated or has its principal place of business. Uh, So the court left open in a footnote the possibility that in exceptional circumstances uh, there could be another uh, place where a corporation was at home, but in almost all cases that was the clear rule that general personal jurisdiction 
is appropriate only where the uh, defendant is incorporated or has its principal place of business. And then the BNSF case from last month was really, you know, an exclamation point on Daimler. The Montana Supreme Court had tried to read Daimler uh, narrowly in a way that excluded cases involving railroads, uh, but the Supreme Court said, no, Daimler's ruling is grounded in due process and applies regardless of the case, the context, or, or the particular claim. Yeah, I can recall likewise being vexed by the Panoia versus Neff case and uh, one else to pro class. I'm envious of uh, a lot of students now that have that more clear uh, at-home uh, standard. But um, maybe with, with that in mind, the, the, the clarified and perhaps more tightly construed general personal jurisdiction doctrine, um, now we get to a case involving specific personal jurisdiction. Has there been any thought that there might be a, a reaction in lower courts perhaps to to stretch that that doctrine in response to what what might be a narrowed a narrowing general personal jurisdiction doctrine? I'm not sure whether the um, whether the it was expected that the lower courts would stretch personal jurisdiction. But one thing the Supreme Court made clear in Goodyear and in Daimler was that specific jurisdiction was to be the the centerpiece of modern jurisdiction theory. And the court said that in Goodyear that that you know general jurisdiction is limited. The difficult cases where you know it's really not clear whether a court should exercise jurisdiction over a defendant, you know, where the really tough cases, those are specific jurisdiction cases. So I don't know whether it was expected that the specific jurisdiction would expand following Daimler, but it was certainly clear from the court's opinions that that was going to be where where the fight is, where the difficult cases are. Okay, uh, now we have this case here, uh, sort of maybe the first uh, first instance of that fight. Um, could you walk me through what the, the facts are? Briefly, I understand we have a defendant drug maker and a couple of classes of, of plaintiffs, some from within the state of California and then a, a larger cohort from outside of the state, right? That's correct. So the case is about a drug called Plavix, which is a blood thinner. And Plavix is developed and marketed by Bristol-Myers Squibb. And the plaintiffs in the case are Plavix users who claim for various reasons that Plavix damages their health. And the claims, as I understand them, is that uh, Bristol-Myers made false, allegedly false claims about the benefits and safety of the drug, uh, which plaintiffs allege increases the risk of heart attack and stroke and various other conditions. So they brought suit in California, uh, but as you know, there are really two categories of cases. There's a, a group of only, I think, 86 California plaintiffs and then almost 600 plaintiffs from from 33 other states. And so it is a, a very small portion of the group of plaintiffs is from California, but California is where the, the case was brought. Okay, and important to this case, as we'll get to, those uh, out-of-state plaintiffs didn't like consume the drug inside of California. They, they consumed it and, and were harmed by it in, in their own states, right? That's that's exactly right, and and that was admitted in the lower courts, and so it was it was clear that the out-of-state plaintiffs did not come to California to uh, to purchase their pills, or their pills were not designed or manufactured in California. It was, that was all done out of state. Okay, then uh, then this case wound its way up to the California Supreme Court, which eventually found that um, specific personal jurisdiction was was proper here. Uh, applying what what seems to me and what I think was um, regarded by most as a, a fairly novel specific personal ju- jurisdiction test, a, a sliding scale approach. Uh, could you tell me about what that that rule was and the, and the court's reasoning as to why that uh, that type of test should uh, apply here? Yeah, the the California courts had initially exercised general personal jurisdiction over Bristol Myers. But in the middle of the litigation, um, in the middle of various, you know, writ practice before the Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court decided the Daimler case. So in light of that, the uh, California courts reconsidered the general personal jurisdiction holding and relied instead on specific jurisdiction. Uh, Case winds its way back up to the California Supreme Court, and the California Supreme Court upheld specific jurisdiction using, as, as you say, a sliding scale approach. And the court's decision was, was really based on a prior California Supreme Court case called Snoney versus Haraz, uh, which involved a Nevada casino that had advertised to California residents. And the standard the court articulated there and followed in Bristol-Myers was that a strict connection between a defendant's contacts with the state and the plaintiff's claims was not necessarily required. If a defendant's contacts with the state was sufficiently intense, 
is the language of the Snowney case picked up in Bristol-Myers, um, that, that a more relaxed or attenuated connection between the context and the claims was permitted. So this was a bit like uh, general jurisdiction light. Um, if you can't get to the place where the defendant is at home, so there's no general jurisdiction, but there are still pervasive contacts, then something short of a direct connection between the contacts and the claims um, was sufficient. So that that's essentially what the California Supreme Court held in the Bristol-Myers case. So if the, the contacts are, are so numerous, then perhaps the uh, the connection between the those connections and the specific harm claimed can be a little bit more tenuous. I understand there was a three-person dissent in this case. It was a 4-3 ruling out of the California Supreme Court. What uh, what was the dissent's problem with uh, the reasoning of the majority, if you recall? Uh, so Justice Werdiger dissented, um, and uh, her, her reasoning was pretty close uh, to what the Supreme Court, uh, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court ultimately adopted, which is that um, the out-of-state plaintiff's claims did not in any sense arise out of Bristol-Myers operations in California. They may have been similar, um, but the claims did not arise out of uh, the California operations. And, you know, she, Justice Werger explained that you could take away all of Bristol-Myers' California operations, uh, say none of that happened, and the out-of-state plaintiff's claims would be no different because those California operations did not affect their claims at all. Then we'll, we'll go ahead and get into the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion. As you say, they sound a lot like the, the California Supreme Court's dissent. Uh, Justice Alito writes for the majority, uh, gets into a few different areas here. First, perhaps he, he deals with the, the sliding scale test uh, enunciated by the California Supreme Court. What, what does he have to say about it? Justice Alito's main criticism was that California's standard was was essentially made up. It didn't uh, reflect the U.S. Supreme Court's approach in any of its recent recent cases. Um, this this rule that if a defendant is doing similar things in California, that somehow provided jurisdiction over claims from outside the state, is not found in any of the U.S. Supreme Court's cases. So he was very critical of the California Supreme Court sort of um, um, making it up. And and he also said, and this came from Justice Warrior's dissent as well, that that specific jurisdiction, the way the California Supreme Court conceived of it, begins to look a lot like just watered down general jurisdiction, um, which the court had uh, had rejected in the in the Daimler and Goodyear cases. Yeah, if you know, is that approach that what the Supreme Court has regarded as sort of watered down general personal jurisdiction, that sliding scale approach, is that did the California Supreme Court kind of make that out of whole cloth? Is there any basis for that in either other states' uh, jurisprudence or in the U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence at, at all? Where exactly do you think that came from? Well, it's not it's not dramatically different from the pre Goodyear or at least pre Daimler general personal jurisdiction rules where where the question was the pervasiveness of the uh, contacts and the uh, continuousness of the contacts. So that's you know, essentially what the California Supreme Court held here, that Bristol-Myers' contacts with California were so extensive and so pervasive that uh, we just weren't going to require the strict connection between those contacts and the plaintiff's claims. Sure. And that does look a lot like sort of the amorphous pre-Goodyear general personal jurisdiction standard that the Supreme Court had uh, rejected. So the Supreme Court had kind of lopped that bit off of the doctrine, and perhaps the California Supreme Court had appended it on to a existing specific personal jurisdiction doctrine. Um, now, even if you set aside that that novel sliding scale approach, uh, you could take the traditional um, accepted specific personal jurisdiction test, and, and if these contexts passed it, um, then jurisdiction could be proper here. But uh, the majority runs through that quickly and says that... Uh, there, there is no specific personal jurisdiction here, right? That's right. So for specific personal jurisdiction, you look at the defendant's conduct and you say, did the defendant engage in any conduct in or directed at the forum state? And if the question is yes, then the next question is, does the plaintiff's claim in this case arise from those in-state conduct, contacts? So here you look at Bristol-Myers' conduct in California and you say, look, they have employees, they advertise in California, they do research in California, they clearly have a presence here. Um, 
And that's essentially what the California Supreme Court looked at. But Justice Alito says, uh, in, the, in the U.S. Supreme Court opinion, he says, that's only step one. At step two, you look at whether the claims in the case, the, um, the suit, this particular lawsuit, whether that arises out of those contacts with the state. It's not just similar contact or similar conduct to what Bristol-Myers was doing in California. The claims have to arise, the, the out-of-state claims have to arise out of Bristol-Myers' contacts with California. And, uh, and he determined, the, the U.S. Supreme Court determined that they did not. Okay, maybe uh, running through a couple of counter-arguments that were at play here. One was regarding a company with which Bristol Myers was affiliated, the company uh, McKesson, a California-based company, a drug manufacturer, which I think helped distribute the the drug nationwide, um, perhaps to also to the states where out-of-state plaintiffs had, had taken the drug. Um, was that maybe perhaps the the best argument for specific personal jurisdiction here? Why was that not uh, convincing? So the court's uh, first response uh, regarding McKesson was that you have to look at each defendant separately. And you can't impute to Bristol-Myers jurisdiction based on a company it had contracted with, McKesson, uh, being a California corporation. And so if McKesson is headquartered or incorporated in California, then a California court can exercise general personal jurisdiction over McKesson, but you don't get to then uh, get at Bristol-Myers simply because it contracted with uh, McKesson. Um, court also noted that there was no claim in the case that the out-of-state plaintiffs received their pills from McKesson or anyone else in California. So, you know, this contract with McKesson was, again, another California contact that Bristol-Myers had. Um, but what was lacking, and as with all these contacts, there was lacking was a connection between that contact and the plaintiff's claims in the case. And, you know, the plaintiff's argument in Bristol-Myers was, um, you know, again, sounding a lot like a general personal jurisdiction argument that, you know, Bristol-Myers is contracting with this California. All of its uh, distribution is going through this California uh, uh, contract with this California corporation. But the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion makes clear that you have to connect that, even if it's a pervasive, even if it's an extensive contact with California, you have to connect that to the plaintiff's claims in the lawsuit. Okay. Now, there were some policy considerations raised throughout uh, the life cycle of this case, a lot of them revolving around um, what would happen to groups of, of plaintiffs and class actions against defendants like Bristol-Myers if jurisdiction was found improper here. Uh, and Justice Alito and the, the majority say that worries about um, a parade of horribles are, are overstated. Uh, we'll get in a bit more when we talk about Justice Sotomayor's dissent into these po- policy considerations, but why, uh, why in the majority's view are there, there other alternatives to plaintiffs that are now um, cut off of, from this particular suit? Yeah, this was you know, the main point of attack in the oral argument, and the main concern expressed by Justice Sotomayor came up over and over again in the oral argument. Um, and you know, if the concern is that we want to be able to aggregate lots of claims in one case to decrease the litigation cost, um, then then that's fine. Uh, the plaintiffs can bring that case in a forum that has general personal jurisdiction over the defendant. Uh, so Bristol-Myers is incorporated in Delaware and headquartered in New York. These 600-plus plaintiffs could have brought that single lawsuit in either one of those states, and the court would have had general personal jurisdiction over Bristol-Myers, and uh, we would not be having this jurisdictional fight. Uh, but what due process prohibits is um, giving plaintiffs their choice of forum, regardless of the Bristol-Myers decision to allow itself to be hauled into court in any of the 50 states. The other you know, the other uh, answer to this concern is that you can join a group of plaintiffs together and bring suit in a particular state. So there were 92 Texas plaintiffs and 70 Ohio plaintiffs, and that's a large enough group for an efficient lawsuit uh, in, in either of those states. So Justice Alito certainly, and the court certainly was not convinced by, by this concern uh, 
by the plaintiffs and by Justice Sotomayor that we need to be able to uh, aggregate these mega lawsuits and have them brought in the plaintiff's uh, forum of choice. One more thing about the majority opinion. At the very end, uh, Justice Alito writes that though, okay, we're, we're clear, states applying personal jurisdiction in, in this manner is, is improper, but perhaps in a, in a federal suit, it, it could be properly said. So, you know, we're not going to get to that question today because it's not presented. Uh, what, how much significance is there in that, uh, that piece of dicta? What exactly um, does that foreshadow? Is there, is there, um, are there cases, is that, is that important going forward for cases perhaps like this? Yeah, I, I, that struck me as interesting as well when I first read the opinion. Uh, I, I don't think Justice Alito is saying that the rule would be different in federal court. Uh, I think he's just saying that, noting that they didn't decide that question. The Omni footnote that he cites and the Asahi footnote that Omni cites are talking about what Congress could do if it wanted to. Um, the current federal rule of civil procedure, uh, 4K, applies traditional jurisdiction rules uh, to federal courts so that uh, jurisdiction, uh, a personal jurisdiction in federal court maps onto whether personal jurisdiction would be uh, proper in a state court in that forum. So I don't think based on the current rules, there's any reason to think that the Bristol-Myers decision could be applied differently in federal court. Um, there are, I think, just interesting questions about what Congress could do in this area if it decided to uh, change the venue rules. Okay, and then maybe just touching on a couple of the points made by Justice Sotomayor in her lone dissent. Uh, I, she she doesn't go to bat for this California sliding scale approach, but she does um, make the fight that under the, the specific personal ju- jurisdiction doctrine, the accepted traditional doctrine, that jurisdiction is, is proper here and that that requirement that the, the claims arise from um, defendants' contacts in a particular forum doesn't cut off jurisdiction. Um, how does she reason that out? And it seems like some of her focus is really on, on the, the nationwide sales of the drug and on the nationwide marketing of the company, perhaps saying that, you know, if the folks in California and the other states were enticed by the, the same marketing campaign to buy the drugs, that that sort of united their claims in a particular way. I guess, walk me through what her reasoning is here. Yeah, it was interesting that, uh, that neither Justice Sotomayor nor the Plaintiffs' Counsel uh, really defended the California Supreme Court's sliding scale rule. So it was clear after the briefing and the oral argument that we were going to get some new decision, not what the California Supreme Court had had adopted. And her reasoning is really precisely what Justice Alito's opinion rejects, which is that uh, this idea that if the conduct in other states is similar to the conduct in California or part of a single nationwide approach that it all comes together and the Texas claims rise out of arise out of California. And I think you're right that her her focus is on really the nationwide aspect of the marketing and sale of Plavix uh, because she is saying that look, Bristol Myers is doing the same thing in every state. Um, the fact that it so happens that Bristol-Myers did not manufacture the drugs or did not uh, market these specific drugs in California, uh, it doesn't make really any sense to nonetheless require plaintiffs in Ohio to bring suit in California when it's based on really the same underlying conduct, the same nationwide uh, marketing campaign. Okay, and then maybe just touching on her, her policy considerations, too. We touched on them some in regard to how Justice Alito and the majority uh, mentioned them. She seems to, to worry that defendants, corporate defendants, will not sort of fully have to face mass torts for, for nationally sold products if they're sort of balkanized within different states. I think, if I'm reading it correctly, she seems to think that defendants could sort of be incentivized or uh, be encouraged to set up shop in, in forums that are you know, mostly defendant-friendly if you know, they'll know they can only face a full mass tort suit in their you know, place of incorporation and principal place of business. Um, and then she also does mention that there could be a concern here where there are foreign defendants uh, if they don't have you know, either one of those two things. And, and also that if you have a mass tort against multiple defendants from different states that 
you couldn't have them joined together in one suit. Um, and so they could elude effective litigation in that way. Is that sort of the the long and short of her concerns? What, what, uh, why, why does she not think that the majority is really, uh, worried enough? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think her, her first concern is that this is going to, uh, make it difficult in some cases to have these mass actions. And it's possible that she's right. It's possible that there are some cases with multiple defendants where you're not going to bring, be able to bring all of the claims of all the plaintiffs against all the defendants in one place unless those defendants waive jurisdiction. That, that's, that's one concern. Her other concern, and she acknowledges that at the end of the day, this boils down to a concern over federalism. And that comes out in Justice Alito's opinion that, um, that the personal jurisdiction analysis encompasses the abstract matter of submitting to the coercive power of a state and and deciding, a defendant being able to decide, I'm going to incorporate myself in this jurisdiction because I like the laws of this jurisdiction. And I'm going to be subject to general personal jurisdiction here. I can always be sued here. And that's what I'm deciding to do. And Justice Sotomayor doesn't find that an important value, doesn't see that as a reason to create these potential inefficiencies by um, by making mass actions less frequent or less uh, uh, less possible. And so that's, you know, really the underlying policy dispute between Justice Alito and Justice Sotomayor, as I see it, this, this concern over federalism, which Justice Alito embraces and Justice Sotomayor does not seem is very important. Okay, uh, then maybe one last one to wrap up. In your view, how how would you gauge the the impact of this ruling on on the competing equities between the the two sides in cases like this, plaintiffs and, and corporate defendants? How how big of a win is this for defendants like Bristol Myers Squibb, um, companies that are often subject to suits um, all over the country? Um, you know, this, does this really sort of change the playing field to any extent, or is it sort of a, just a, um, a clarification of what really had been the status quo? How, how, how would you gauge it? So I, I have to admit my bias because I'm a defense lawyer, <laughs> and I litigate these issues a lot on the defense side. Um, so I was, you know, very happy with the with the ruling. I, I think it's pretty clear that the decision does move the needle in favor of defendants. In terms of defendants being able to have some predictability or foreseeability of where they're going to be uh, subject to suit. That a you know a New Jersey corporation, if it decides it doesn't want to sell very much in California, it's not at risk of being hauled into court in California where it doesn't like the legal regime and doesn't want to pay for uh, either travel for its executives or lawyers or whatever. So I think that it moves the needle in favor of defendants uh, in terms of predictability and uh, control over where they can be uh, subject to suit, uh, but I don't think you know the decision is uh, is a dramatic change in the law. You know the the California Supreme Court's decision was really an outlier. It was it was a very unique standard. It was it had moved personal jurisdiction law um, far away from where it had been. There are many states. Uh, where the legal standard is not going to be affected by this decision. Uh, New Hampshire, for example, I, I litigated this issue there recently. And New Hampshire requires that claims directly arise out of a defendant's specific contacts with the state. And that is essentially what the uh, U.S. Supreme Court held here. So in a state like New Hampshire that has been uh, been following this legal standard for some time, I don't think that uh, the Bristol-Myers case will have much, if any, effect. Uh, well, then, for now, Blaine Evanson, partner at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, thanks for uh, being here to unpack this case for us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Once more, that was Blaine Evanson, Gibson Dunn, speaking about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Bristol-Myers Cooper Superior Court correcting the California Supreme Court's view of specific personal jurisdiction. Let's hear now from Professor William Bode from the University of Chicago Law School on an issue raised in another U.S. Supreme Court ruling 
this week about the the legal foundation of qualified immunity and whether or not it might be a bit suspect. Very happy to have on the podcast now Professor William Bode, a Neubauer family assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we're deviating a bit from the typical practice of, of the show where we'll focus on a a holding of a particularly salient appellate ruling. We're talking today more about a piece of dicta from one of this week's U.S. Supreme Court rulings in Ziegler versus Abbasi, and it deals with the doctrine of qualified immunity, and it signals what could potentially be be a bit of a, a sea change in that doctrine. And as we'll get into, uh, the uh, the piece of dicta references uh, a law review article that's forthcoming that you wrote. Uh, it's a, a concurrence by Justice Thomas, and it really questions sort of the continued viability of the application of the doctrine. So first, maybe to start, for folks that don't practice in that area every day, could you let me know the, what exactly the, the current standard is for the qualified immunity defense to uh, claims um, brought under sections like 1983 and, and, and the like? Right. So that's, uh, it's not in the statute. The statute, uh, section 1983, says that uh, state officials uh, who violate your uh, civil rights can be held liable. And the court has said you held liable for the violation. And the court has said, uh, you know, even though even though it's not what the even though the statute doesn't say anything about sort of defenses and when people can be sued and things like that, that um, there's a kind of there's a kind of secondary defense that almost all government officials have that you can't be held liable for violating somebody's constitutional rights unless the law was already clearly established that what you're doing was unconstitutional, right? So it's not not just the question of was it unconstitutional, but also how clear was it? Uh, and so you kind of asked ask two questions. Was there a constitutional violation? And if so, uh, how clear was it? And the court has, has also framed that clearness requirement in a sort of stark way. It said that uh, the only people who can be held liable are those who are uh, either incompetent or who knowingly violate the law. That is, you have to be either incompetent or malevolent. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't be sued. And we'll get sort of more into it, but that, that, the, the level of clearness can kind of be a bit of a, a moving target, right? It seems like a sort of fuzzy, a fuzzy standard just to, as to how clear something mu- must need to be before um, you, you can invoke this defense, right? Uh, yes, no, that's right. Obviously, sort of constitutional law often deals with distraction. So figuring out exactly how clear it has to be, is, that's moved a little bit over time. I'll just flag now, for example, plaintiffs have tried to say, well, look, it's clearly established under, say, the Fourth Amendment that you can't do unreasonable searches and seizures. This was an unreasonable search and seizure, therefore it's unconstitutional. The court has said, no, no, you can't do that. That's too, you know, that's looking at it at too high a level of distraction. Right. Okay. Um, then... Let's touch on before we get into the the opinion, your your forthcoming law review article in the California Law Review, talking about uh, why the legal basis for the the modern doctrine is problematic. Uh, you have a few reasons for why this is so, but you start the article off by saying that particularly now, just addressing this question is somewhat urgent um, because of a few different concatenating variables. What what is the reason why you know, talking about this now, the doctrine of qualified immunity, and whether it has a strong legal basis is is so important. So here, here are the two things that sort of, uh, yeah, that, that got me convinced I needed to write this paper, uh, sooner rather than later. One is just, uh, looking at the world, uh, the, the sort of scale and reaction to various forms of police misconduct, I think, I think a lot of us know has gotten, uh, since beginning worse. Um, you know, I don't know that we have a, see an empirical study about this, but, uh, just last week with the, uh, you know, another police officer acquitted on charges of um, misusing force against what turns out to be an innocent person. Uh, it's like every every time we turn around, there's a new uh, a new police officer who's uh, panicking or or making a bad call. Uh, exactly the kinds of sort of unreasonable searches and seizures that that might well be unconstitutional, but not necessarily violate the standard. Um, so we see, I've seen a lot of sort of activism and, and complaints about what's going on, and I thought it was helpful to point out one thing that the Black Lives Matter movement ought to be concerned about is the qualified immunity that police officers get uh, for their misconduct. And then on the flip side, looking not at the, the world, but at the court, um, the Supreme Court, at the same time this is going on, the Supreme Court is kind of amping up the standard of qualified immunity in a couple of ways. It's been taking... Um, more cases where it sort of slowly ratchets up this level of clarity required target we're talking about. 
And it's sort of gone out of its way to take some of these cases. Uh, and it's even, you know, there's a sort of small portion of the Supreme Court's docket that it devotes to summarily reversing lower court opinions that it thinks are wrong, even if there wasn't a circuit split or the normal kind of indicia of, of Supreme Court sort of certworthiness. And the court is devoted, it seems like, a portion of the docket to qualified immunity cases in particular. So it's, so it's saying, you know, wow, the lower court let a police officer get sued here. That's a sufficiently big deal that we need to we need to sort of put an extra alarm bell on that and see if it sees it needs our attention. So that while it's on the one hand we're seeing these consequences in the world, we're seeing the court kind of put more and more weight on this doctrine. Yeah, so if the, the doctrine is being crystallized and in fact the doctrine is legally suspect, that would be obviously problematic. You, you list sort of three different reasons or you, you identify three pillars, three legal pillars upon which the, the modern doctrine seems to rest and, and then question each one in, in turn. Let's get to each one quickly here. First, you say a common reason cited for invoking qualified immunity is this uh, common law good faith defense that existed before statutes like 1983 were enacted and so sort of was was baked into those. What uh, What is the argument here and why do you think that, that common law good faith defense isn't really a good reason to invoke qualified immunity here? So one of the course main arguments, this is the main part of doctrine in this area, is that the, the you hinted at it, but um, if sort of the time Section 1983 was enacted in 1871, there was some sort of established defense. For example, the rule that judges can't usually be held liable for their rulings, right? That if you have a problem with the judge did, you're supposed to appeal it, not, like, sue the judge. Um, that then that defense kind of carries over into the statute, sort of uh, the same way that unwritten defenses carry over to criminal statutes, like self-defense or necessity or duress. So that's that's one of the core things the court has set up with the doctrine. And that I mean, the biggest problem, and I, it's hard to uh, the biggest problem is it's just not true. The biggest problem is when you when you go back and look at how lawsuits against uh, officials and and doing this kind of thing worked in the nineteenth century, there wasn't anything like a kind of uh, a good face to face defense for most constitutional suits. The idea was, you know, if you act unconstitutionally you're sort of definitionally not acting in good faith because you don't have the power to do whatever you're doing. Moreover, even if you, even if there are a few cases that you kind of squint at to get something kind of like qualified immunity defense, but even if you look at those cases, um, you don't get anything like the modern qualified immunity defense, which uh, both doesn't look at what the officer actually thought, so you can get qualified immunity even if you act in bad faith. The question is sort of more like, can we imagine a reasonable officer in your circumstances who might have done what you did, even if we know you're acting in bad faith? And uh, the sort of strength of the defense, this idea that you have to be either sort of incompetent or malevolent, much stronger than any kind of good faith that sort of Okay. Uh, now, the second pillar or the second sort of maybe basis for qualified immunity as it exists now uh, is an interesting one as you lay it out. It, it sounds like it's sort of a, a judge-made, a judicial correction to maybe a, what had been a judicial bro- overly broad interpretation of uh, statutes like 1983 is sort of applying them in too, too many areas. And this line of thought deals with the question of sort of what exactly 1983 claims should cover uh, and parses out sort of what under color of law means. Could you walk me through uh, your line of thought here? Yeah, so this, this is a weird one. And this is part of, uh, as I started to write this paper, I tried, wanted to really get in the lead of, you know, what other justifications does the court have for this doctrine? Because it seems like the historical doctrine, the historical justification doesn't really, doesn't really do the work. And this idea that Justice Scalia had in the 1990s in a case called Crawford L. He said, okay, qualified immunity may well not have any historical basis, but that's okay. Because in the 1960s, we misinterpreted the civil rights statute in the first place in a way that was too friendly to like this, and now we're kind of making up for it. And he was in particular concerned about a case called Monroe versus Pape, where the court uh, sort of defined what it was for a police officer to act under color of state law. That's another requirement of the statute, the court has to act under color of state law, uh, and said that, uh, you know, that, that can include people who are, who are doing something so illegal that it also violates state law. I don't know, weird. it's like the, 
the scenario that comes up a lot is the police officers, you know, come into your house and are alleged to have used excessive force or, or to have done an unreasonable seizure in a way that, that even under local law they shouldn't do. And it was Illinois law and versus tape. And the officers tried to argue, you can't sue us under federal law because we were acting, if your claims are true, we were acting so illegally that, you know, even the state law forbid what we do. And so you should just have to go after us under state law or something. And the court said, no, that's that's silly. Uh, you know, your police officers are using your badges and guns, the power of the state to, to perpetrate this constitutional violation. The fact that you were doing it in a way that's illegal doesn't, doesn't save you. And Justice Scalia thought, uh, and, and to be fair, Justice Frankfurter thought this too, he, he dissented in the case, that this case was wrong and that um, police officers should only be held, be held liable if state law kind of backed up their actions. Um and so he says, well, since we did that wrong, and that expanded the number of police officers you can sue, qualified immunity has kind of taken some of that ground back. And so we, you know, it's okay that we have this doctrine as a kind of two wrongs make a right uh, course correction. So the first problem uh, uh, with this whole way of thinking about it is that Monroe versus Pape is not wrong. Uh, Frankfurt does have a good dissent in the case, and, and I for a while, even he had me going. He had me worried this case was wrong, and that was sort of where, where some of the problems came from. But uh, if you look into kind of the text and history and other normal indicia of statutory meaning, the, it seems to be pretty plainly right that in the 19th century, uh, a person who was violating state law but holding out their badge, their gun, and using their state authority was still acting under color of state law. That was even kind of the point of the phrase. Right under color of state law, meant you were claiming state law, whether you had it or not. Sure. And even if that were wrong, uh, even if somehow this case, this case were wrongly decided, uh, qualified immunity turns out to be a really strange way to try to make up for it, because it doesn't actually change the result in the kinds of cases Justice Scalia was worried about, and it changes the result instead in a bunch of other cases. So the the rare officers who are denied qualified immunity or held liable under the current doctrine are the officers who are acting so egregiously that their conduct violates state law, too. Right. So they're, they're exactly the people who Justice Scalia thought shouldn't be held liable. They're the ones who get held liable now. Whereas the people whose conduct is kind of closer to the edge, maybe state law would say what they do is okay, but federal law would say it's not okay, those are the people who get protected by qualified immunity. So rather than fixing the problem that Justice Scalia said was, was there, qualified immunity kind of doubles down on it. It gives more immunity to the people who already have it uh, and more liability to the people who already have it. Yeah, there does seem to be a bit of a mismatch there. Um, now, I want to get into the, the third substantive area that you reckon with here, uh, the potential pillar for qualified immunity. And you tease out this notion that there's a, a bit of the doctrine of lenity also baked into modern qualified immunity, although very rarely expressly uh, cited to. Of course, that sort of comes from criminal law doctrine and um, isn't mentioned, obviously, in 1983 itself, a, a civil claim statute. Um, what exactly is your argument uh, here as to how this uh, doctrine might not support qualified immunity? Right. So the idea is that the same kind of, the same kind of deference or the same kind of ambiguity might favor you um, in the criminal context that would apply in Section 1983. Um, and this doctrine, I mean, there, there are these sort of, uh, there are, there's this problem in the first place that the rule of lenity is mostly about criminal law. Uh, you know, the idea is that there's something special about the state's ability to, to lock you up or, or kill you that should make us worried about, about doing it unless the law is completely clear. So carrying it over to Section 1983, which is sort of an ordinary tort statute, already seems a, a little bit strange. And if you tell this to a tort scholar, they'd say, look, we hold people liable for situations that are unclear all the time. That's how the tort system works. Mm -hmm. But even more than that, and this is, again, even if you grant the court's premise, um, it actually ends up treating officers much, much better under qualified immunity than people get treated under other real criminal statutes. So, for example, in the case the Supreme Court had this week, Zigwar, uh, the main reason it grants qualified immunity is it says, well, look, lower courts disagreed on whether liability is appropriate in this kind of circumstances. Some federal courts have said yes, some federal courts have said no. That pretty much by itself shows that the laws are clear. After all, if like one court thought this was okay and one court thought this was not okay, who is the federal officer to disagree with 
you know, one of the federal courts. So basically he says you can't hold people liable if the, if the lower courts have disagreed. Now, criminal defendants have, have made this exact same argument to the court. They have said, look, you say I violated federal statute, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the lower courts were split. Some lower courts thought this was totally okay. And under the rule of lenity, I should be able to be liable for making the same mistake that a federal court made. And the Supreme Court has categorically rejected that argument when it comes to criminal defendants. It said, look, if some lower courts say yes and some lower courts say no, you should be on notice that you're on dangerous ground and you can't complain if we later side one set of the courts. So the, the police officers get the, the favorable side, the friendly side of this kind of ambiguity, and real criminal defendants who are protected by the real rule of lenity uh, get, the, get the tough side. Those are sort of the three principal bases upon which this is modern doctrine rests, and, and you've called into question each one of them. What is there anything left to identify that still could support uh, qualified immunity, at least in its, its current form? You do say that it seems to have taken on a bit of a constitutional character, more so than just a, a defense to a particular statute. What, what do you mean by that, and could that sort of uh, make it more more difficult to, to alter as we go forward? Yeah, so I mean, this part of the you know part of the goal of legal scholarship is to flesh out uh, to flesh out better arguments in support of whatever's going on. So, so you know, my goal is to take on what the court has done, and maybe somebody can help something better. Um, one possibility, and I, I wouldn't endorse this. One possibility is that you could say that qualified immunity comes not from any of these statutory principles, but from some sort of constitutional principle of executive power. You can't be held to account too much, uh, and some early early officers try to make this kind of argument, sort of like state sovereign immunity. We might say that just as states have some sort of unenumerated constitutional immunity from being sued, maybe all government officials carry that forward to some extent because the the constitution requires a certain amount of autonomy for the government. Um, again, I think this is totally backwards. I think the, it also requires the government obey the law, but that would be a possibility. You could also imagine that, you know, I've been talking sort of as if the, the text and history uh, and structure of the statute are the main things that matter, but there are people who interpret statutes in a much more uh, kind of common law manner. So a judge could come along and say, well, sure, this, this doctrine wasn't here uh, at the beginning, and, and none of those justifications support it, but uh, we just think as a matter of policy it's a good idea, and we think judges have the power to to add to statutes things they think are a good policy, um, sort of like they've done to the, the antitrust statutes or a few other areas. Okay, now we mentioned at the top that the, the high court has, has more readily applied the qualified immunity doctrine and been quick to strike down lower courts that do not. But over the course of the last um, you know, 10, 20 years, have there been any objections by justices as to the application of the doctrine? Uh, yeah, so, well, so just last week, last week, to my surprise, um, Justice Thomas uh, decided to, to register his concerns to the doctorate. So the, the court had a civil rights case of a bunch of, just a bunch of federal officials for claims arising out of 9-11, uh, which are dismissed and held or blocked for various reasons, including qualified immunity. And Justice Thomas wrote separately to say... You know, our doctrine is supposed to require these kinds of immunities to be grounded in the history of the, of 1983 and to be the kinds of things that were well established at, at common law, like judicial immunity. And as I look at this, it's not so clear to me that qualified immunity is. And I would like to reconsider it, as he always does, in an appropriate case, sure. uh, which is usually the first step towards, towards maybe putting this doctrine up for reconsideration. Just as Thomas cites your law review article, uh, in that concurrence as a um, good evidence for why the doctrine could be or perhaps needs to be reconsidered. Um, a couple of things, you know, did that, did you know that was going to happen? Did that surprise you at all? And in your article, you say that perhaps even sort of uh, suggesting that this inquiry be made is a bit naive considering sort of the momentum that qualified immunity has seemed to have picked up. Uh, were you surprised at, at all to see him one, you know, sort of raise that question and also then to, to cite your work? Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, completely shocked, although pleased. Sure. Um, so I, I gave a version of my paper at a workshop once, uh, and, and the re reaction I got, including from people who had been in the government, was very skeptical. The sort of people who had served in the government 
seem to think. Uh, it just can't be true that we would be held to account for everything unconstitutional we did. That would make our lives so hard. Truly, truly, that's not what Congress had in mind. And so I kind of assumed that that was the reaction I encountered anybody uh, in a position of power. They would say, you know, we've just, we've just lived with this for, for decades, and it's such a good idea that considering it is off the table. Um, so I didn't really expect to see anybody, even Justice Thomas, uh, be willing to take it seriously. Okay, well, now, now that it sounds like he at least is, it's only one justice out of the nine, although I think in this case only six were were hearing and deciding it. But um, what do you think it augurs for the future of qualified immunity? Do you think this could be the first uh, indication of a potential sea change in, in the doctrine? And as you say, um, you know, the justice suggests that in a, in a proper case, they could revisit the question, is there a case like that in the pipeline? I think you mentioned one in an article you, you wrote for the Washington Post this past week that could be coming up next term, right? So I'm not, I'm not getting my hopes up too much. I mean, I think if the court were going to, you know, really radically reconsider the doctrine or get rid of it, uh, it would be one of those strange coalitions of justices on the, on the so-called right and on the so-called left, is my guess. Uh, it would be the kind of case that scrambles a lot of lives. Uh, that could happen, but, but uh, I don't know. Um, I do think it, it's more likely we might see at least a little bit of, of sort of uh, ratcheting it back. Either the, the court would be, might be forced to, to come up with a new justification for the doctrine, which I think would at least be a healthy from a, from a rule of law point of view, or it might, uh, might even sort of tamper the doctrine a little bit and say, you know, look, we, we may have given the impression that police officers are above the law and can never be sued. There are at least some circumstances under which, under which they can be sued. Uh, and to that end, I mean, that the court has just had very, very few cases where it's ever found anything to violate clearly established law, so it's hard for lower courts to point to anything as the, as the paradigm case of what you're supposed to be able to sue for. There, there's a pending case, but it does ask the court to reconsider all the immunity doctrine, and it's not a case I'm involved with uh, right now, but but I noticed it when I was when I was writing about this, uh, where it, the facts seem pretty outrageous from from what we can read in the complaint. The the police officers have somebody in custody and they think she has drugs and she she takes some drugs and stuffs them in her stuffs them in her mouth uh, to hide them from the police officers. So she shouldn't be doing that. And they respond by trying to basically choke her uh, to try to get her, force her to open her mouth so they can get the drugs out, uh, and then also maybe beat her while they're choking her. And in the course of, of choking and beating her in the back of the squad car, they uh, kill her. Uh, and that, that, that's the second they should have done that. Um, and the, the Fifth Circuit, uh, in response to a lawsuit trying to hold her liable, said, look, uh, we don't have a lot of case law on how much you're allowed to uh, choke or beat somebody when you think they have drugs in their mouth. And therefore, it's not very clear this is unconstitutional and the police officers win, uh, which seems like exactly the example of maybe the immunity doctrine taking over uh, and, and eclipsing any kind of normal constitutional analysis. But as you say, perhaps not too surprising considering the signals that the high court gives out that you know qualified immunity should be pretty readily given unless it's you know really clear that... The wrongdoing was known. Yeah, I don't mean to be blaming any individual judge here. I mean, I think if you were a lower court judge, you might well have the impression that any time a police officer is held liable, a little red siren goes off in the Supreme Court saying, like, whoa, better check this out. See if the, this is sort of unusual circumstances are really are really present here. So the, the obvious message to lower courts is, you know, don't don't uh, hold police officers liable, uh, you know, unless it's like front page New York Times level uh, misconduct. Right. Okay. Well, certainly the dictated here is a, a bit of a to be continued. And so we'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned to see what happens next with qualified immunity. But uh, for now, Professor William Bode from the University of Chicago Law School, thanks for being on the podcast and congr- congratulations on having your work uh, cited here in this, uh, this opinion. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And with that, our program for June 23rd, 2017 is complete. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, and thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget, CLE credit can be yours for listening. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.